while Costco, Amazon, Target, Best Buy, and other major corporations have all raised their minimum wage in recent years to at least $15 an hour. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from the CEO of Costco. The minimum wage at Walmart has remained stuck at $11 an hour for the last three years. The result, 760,000 workers at Walmart. Walmart is the largest employer in America. 760,000 employees, about half of their U.S. workforce, are paid less than $15 an hour. Now, I don't know. Maybe if you are a billionaire family, you may not understand this. But the simple truth is that no one in America can live with dignity, can raise a family on $11 or $12 an hour. And I must say, on a personal level, that I have talked to too many employees in this country who, with tears in their eyes, tell me about the struggles that they are having, trying to feed their kids, pay their rent on the starvation wages that they receive. All right, so there's Bernie Sanders yesterday uh, basically talking about how Walmart, one of the wealthiest companies out there, pays such low wages that a big chunk of their workers are actually on food stamps, on Medicaid, and getting other public assistance. So this is basically a large corporation with wealthy owners free riding off the American taxpayer. And yet here we are having an argument right now as to whether or not a $15 minimum wage should be a thing, which is ridiculous. It should have been a thing in 2016. It's now 2021. Now the minimum wage should at least be $22 to $30 an hour. So as far as I'm concerned, that ship sailed. But we're still having this argument. And part of why we're having this argument is because the Democratic Party doesn't seem to want to stop trying to worship two masters. They want to worship their corporate donors on one side, and then they want to claim to be about the working class on the other. And obviously, these two things are at loggerheads. So uh, Bernie Sanders has now declared that he's going to force the vote on the fight for 15. Here to discuss this with me and other things is Farron Cousins from Ring of Fire Media. Welcome, Farron. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I thought you were the perfect person to get angry with me about this. Um, you know, yesterday he tweeted an unelected staffer should not be deciding whether the 30 million, whether 30 million Americans should get a pay raise. Uh, the staffer he's referring to is the parliamentarian. Uh, you know, there's a lot of going on here with the parliamentarians, so I want to talk about that for a second. The um, press secretary an hour ago had a press conference where she was questioned on this. Here you have Biden basically going to, to arm's length to fight for Neera Tandon to get confirmed. That's important to him. He said he will do everything he can to have that happen, even though she's completely unpopular. And yet, here we have a thing where we need people to get higher wages for the obvious reasons, and he's not going to go to the mat for that. It would take one vote to make this change, Kamala Harris's. And then it would take another 60 votes to override Kamala Harris's decision. Yet, this is what the press secretary said an hour ago. The parliamentarian decision, you said that he respects that decision, but progressives don't understand this. In some respects, they're like, why not fight for this? So why is the White House not more aggressively challenging that and sending the vice president to try and you know, potentially overrule that with the vote. 
Well, uh, the the decision for a vice, the vice president to uh, vote to overrule or to take a step to overrule is not a simple decision. Uh, it would also require 50 votes. Uh, as you know, it's not a one-step decision. And the president and the vice president both respect uh, the history of the Senate. Uh, they are both formally served in the Senate, and that's not an action we intend to take. But I... The president is committed to raising the minimum wage, to working to determine the best vehicle forward <clears throat> to doing that. That's why he put it in the package. He wants it to be raised to $15 an hour, and he will be in touch with uh, leaders uh, from all wings of the party in determining the best path forward for that. Go ahead, Jeff. A follow-up to Jeff's question, which, which strikes me. The, the, the White House doesn't have 50 votes to confirm Neera Tandon as OMB director, and yet uh, we heard from the White House chief of staff say that the White House is they're going to fight their guts out, fight our guts out was the phrase he used to get her confirmed. So why push for that and not push as hard, one could say, for raising the minimum wage? You could make the argument that the American people stand to benefit more from a higher wage than they would from a chosen OMB director. Well, I think that's mixing a few things um, kind of irresponsibly, if I'm just being totally honest. Um, I would say on the minimum wage, the president included a raise of the minimum wage in his package because he felt strongly that it's long overdue, that men and women working hard, trying to make ends meet, shouldn't be living at the poverty level. That's why he put it in his package. There is a process that go, it goes through, a parliamentary process, it, when it's a reconciliation bill, as you know, but for people who haven't been following all the nitty gritty of this, because it's a budgetary bill. Uh, that's why it went through the process. And, uh, you know, again, I would, I would send you to talk to leaders in Congress to see if they have the 50 votes necessary. But regardless, the president, the vice president have made the decision they're not going to move forward uh, with that step. But all of experience, uh, she is qualified, she is uh, prepared to lead the budget uh, team. And uh, we're continuing, of course, to fight for the confirmation of, uh, of every nominee uh, that the president puts forward. We'll see if we have 50 votes. That's part of the journey. That's part of democracy in action. I do not even know what is going on here. She's saying it's not a simple process when it actually is. Kamala Harris could just override the parliamentarian. What are your thoughts on this? It, 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 it's an absolute lie. I mean, <laughs> let's just call call it what it is here. I mean, she she's straight up lying. You know, we we got used to this, I guess, for four years, and she thinks she can just slip it in because that's what people, you know, have, have become accustomed to. But no, th this isn't true. I mean, yeah. as you just said, Kamala Harris can absolutely come out and say, not just override it, but that we're not listening to this advice. Because that's what this is. This isn't even an actual rule. Right. Before 1935, the parliamentarian didn't even exist. Right. It, it was a thing they just made up because they wanted to. And so you can either do it that way. You can have uh, Vice President Harris come out and say, yeah, thanks for the advice, but we're not taking it. Or two, you can just fire him. Happened 20 years ago when Republicans wanted a tax cut. And so they just said, well, since you're saying we can't do this, we're gonna fire you. Right. And then we can do it. So there's there's options. There's, there's lots of different options. options that are very easy. I agree with you, Farron. Here's the other thing. Parliamentarians, in my opinion, just I'm saying this based on experience, what I've seen at DNC meetings, where I've seen at the California Democratic Party meetings from talking to insiders in the party. And I'm sure the same is true of the Senate, just on a different scale. But parliamentarians aren't there necessarily to, preser to preserve Rogers or... Uh, Rule of rules of order, right? The parliamentarian handbook. They're there to do the bidding of leadership to find reasons or rules to support what the leadership wants. How, you know, so how far up the food chain do you think this goes? Is this really 
really the case that they don't want to overstep their boundaries with the parliamentarian and want to be respectful? Or is it that they want to not have the $15 minimum wage as part of the COVID relief package? Or do you think it's something in between? Um, it could be something in between, but I think really what it is is that this isn't something that they care too much about. I, I don't yeah. think that they're legitimate with saying that they want this. They're, they're using it as an excuse to say, oh, shucks, guys, we, we really tried super hard. Like we, we asked our mom if we could do it and she said no. So dang it. Oh, oh, no. But no, look. I don't know exactly what their reasoning is here for, for not even wanting to push this, because to me, that's that, that that's really where we need to get some answers here is, mm -hmm. is what's the problem? What's the holdup? Why do you oppose this? This doesn't affect you. Right. This isn't something that, that it, you're you're not paying it out of your pocket, but it will stimulate the overall U.S. economy. And sure, company is going to have to pay a little bit more money in the beginning and it's going to you know reduce income a little or revenue a little bit but you're going to see it return tenfold when people start getting bigger paychecks because as we all know what happens to the people at the bottom of the economic food chain when you give them more money they spend it they not spend because it, they're right. bad with money but because they have to spend it these are the people right. and i know because i've been there plenty of times they put off things like car repairs they put off going to the doctor they put off all kinds of things that they need to do, but they don't have the money to do it. So when you give them these raises, they go out there and they spend this money. They get caught up, essentially, is what we're talking about. And for some reason, this administration isn't willing to fight for that. Right. And that, to me, seems odd. This is hugely popular. It is supported uh, by most Americans. So, so what's really happening behind the scenes here? That's what we need to know. That's what we need to know. I, so to treat the parliamentarian as a sacred cow is absolutely absurd to me. So <clears throat> having said that, though, you know, this morning there was announcement that Biden is deploying the Defense Authorization Act so that uh, this vaccine from Johnson and Johnson can Merck and them can get together to work on putting this out there. So when it seems to be something that in some way benefits a corporation where it doesn't actually have anything to do with structural change that will help the working class, they seem to be able to go to the mat for it and, and make that happen. And here we have something simple where there's no sacred cow here. The parliamentarian is not a sacred cow. Go ahead and slay it. I mean, like you said, fire it, really, if you want to. Um, or just overrule it with Kamala Harris's vote. I don't see what, what is not simple here. It really is that simple. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see what happens next with the Bernie Sanders camp. Um, I think he's a little bit more fired up than he was previously. I think he is gonna fight to force the vote. I'd like to um, I'd like to see him do it. So he's getting outside pressure. Uh, Warren Gunnels, who is Bernie's chief of staff, had a tweet uh, yesterday. If you don't follow Warren Gunnels on Twitter, I suggest that you do, he's fantastic. But he basically said, the parliamentarian advised today that we can provide billions of dollars to private insurance companies with 51 votes. But we need 60 votes to raise the wages of 32 million workers by increasing the minimum wage to 15. Yes, that is absurd. So, yeah, it is absurd. And then SEIU, the union, came in with a tweet this morning, and they're turning up the heat as well. SEIU tweeted out, we elected you. We expect you to deliver real relief at a $15 minimum wage. No excuses. So I think that is necessary. I think labor, I think union management needs to really put the pressure on here. 
and um, everybody needs to keep putting that pressure on. Do you think what what do you think is going to happen next in this drama? Um, well, hopefully Bernie does everything in his power to make this a reality. And of course, then at that point, we've got to worry about your mansions and your cinemas and, right. you know, those folks. But I, I think at this time, too, we have to talk about the fact that the Democrats, we are watching them in very slow motion commit political suicide. Yeah. You know yeah. this is popular. You know you have to deliver. And, and let's be frank here. You've got one year. You know, by this time next year, we're going to be talking about primary challengers. We're going to be talking about all of these things ahead of the midterms. So you've got 2021 to do something great and grand for the American public. Right. And instead, in this last week, this entire administration seems to have just fallen apart and become what all of us on the left feared it was going to yeah. be. You know, we got a, a, a four week honeymoon, really of, hey, here's a good environmental executive order. Hey, we got some vaccines rolling out. Right. Awesome. And then suddenly we're we're bombing Syria and we're not fighting for minimum wage and we're fighting way too hard for Nira Tandit. Like that fight also makes no sense. What's really no sense. driving their drive to get her in there? It's not like she's the most qualified person on the planet. Right. So there's so many weird things that are happening that defy all logic right now. But at the end of the day, all of it amounts to one thing, and that is the Democrats are setting themselves up to lose big time in 2022. So do you play, uh, on that note, do you play much credence to this idea that that is by design? You know, sometimes I hear progressives make comments about, well, that's what that's what the system's designed to do. That's what the Democratic Party does. They enable the Republicans because they're so tied to corporate cash as well. Is there some truth to that? Because everything you're saying to me right now seems completely obvious. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the Democrats are just as awash with the corporate uh, cash as the Republicans. So that could be it. But this almost, I don't know, you, you can usually smell out those things when it's like, ah, this is the corporate money making them do this. I, I, I don't even know if this is it, because at the yeah. end of the day, these corporations <laughs> understand raising the wages like i mentioned for about right. you know a couple weeks it may look bad on paper but then suddenly your papers look better than ever they know because they've seen in the cities where this has happened right what happens to the spending so i don't know i can't quite put my finger on it yet and so i'm hoping things do become a little bit more clear and the near attendant thing though I, I don't know that there is any real rhyme or reason to why they're fighting so hard for her but, you know, they, they announced uh, at the end of last week they were going to get uh, these Asian-American groups to come out and start, I guess, lobbying members of the Senate to support Neera Tandon. So they are willing to reach out to outside groups, to, to right. influential groups to say, hey, go talk to this senator and get them on board with us. But, of course, they're not willing to do that to actually fight for 50. Yeah, it's outrageous. And to your point, I agree with you on the consumption part of the argument if they want to save capitalism, and I, I sort of think that's where we're headed, either we have to completely upend the system and replace it with something better, or these guys need to fight to save capitalism. And if they are going to do that, they need to put more expendable income into the lower classes. You know, the last few years, you've had a platonomy, a 1%, that is extracting more than 80% of the new wealth that's being created. It's not tenable. If you want people to keep buying the widgets that you're manufacturing, you, you're going to have to give them money to do that with. Um, and right now, people absolutely do not have the credit 
and they don't have they don't have the spare cash. So that seems obvious to me as well, but they don't seem to see it, or if they see it, they don't care. I'm not sure which is worse or which it is. Um, having said that, another part of the conversation, Farron, I think is the filibuster. There, you know, where are we at with that? Maybe if we got rid of the got rid of the filibuster, this would be a non-issue as well. What are your thoughts on the filibuster? I think it absolutely needs to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's this kind of look. I, at this point, I, I, I'm of the mind that it may be time for just the entire Senate itself, this structure, this organization, uh, to be gone. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't work, to put it very mildly, right now. And the filibuster, yes, is a big part of that. But I think even broader, we're looking at institutions here in the United States that sure they worked when we had a population of like 10 million people spread across 13 states. Yeah, that's great, but that's not what we are anymore. Right. And we have a majority of the people in the Senate representing a minority of people in this country. You know, you it simply doesn't work anymore. No one back then when we formed these institutions could have fathomed you know, that we'd have a population of close to 330 million people, with most of them obviously concentrated along the coasts here. And California has the same number of of senators as as Wyoming, and no offense to Wyoming. Right. But, you know, that's not feasible. And then when you come out with these archaic rules and, and traditions, really, like the filibuster, oh, well, you can't get rid of it because it's just, it's been around so long. And well, the parliamentarian says we shouldn't do something this way, so I guess we should listen to this thing that we've created. I mean, there's people in this country older than that position is right now, the parliamentarian. There's people that can look back and say, oh, yeah, I remember when they made that. Right. So, no, this is not a part of who we are, but it's a part of who they claim we are. Because up till, you know, what, last week, nobody... Maybe few people, let's be honest, knew what a parliamentarian was or that one even existed. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're falling back on all these things. Most people, I guarantee you, can't even tell you what a filibuster is. Right. But they have to go. These things have to go if this institution is actually going to do anything. Otherwise, we just keep sending people there every six years and they sit there and tell us why we can't have nice things. So it all needs to go. I mean, we got to start breaking that place apart, you know, metaphorically, metaphorically. Good God, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, you have to be have careful, Farron, like, in this environment. <laughs> yeah, get rid of the parliamentarian. And once it starts working, we can stop taking pieces of it apart. Right. But until then, you know, we got to start getting rid of the things that don't work and see if we can jumpstart this thing again. I mean, I think to that, to, to what you're speaking to now, the House of Representatives also, when is the last time they added districts or positions for that? A long time ago. So California, which is far more populous, we should have many more congressional districts than what we do currently. But they haven't added any positions. Um, so they need to change that, I agree. It's not proportional at this point. And now they're going to re-gerrymander them. And we lost a lot by we, I'm saying the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party lost a lot of seats at the state level, and those are the folks responsible for doing the gerrymandering. So we could look at a worse situation than what we saw in 2010. I don't know where the Democratic Party is, uh, leadership is at this point thinking about that, but it should be on their radar. It's important. Yeah, right. I mean, we, 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 we do like the, the House, the Senate, all of it. 
I'm sure there was a time long before any of us were alive when these institutions worked the way they were envisioned. But, you know, you, you can't keep a car for 20 years. You can't keep the same institution right. going. Hell, even, you know, uh, these former monarchies evolved, even the ones that kept the monarchy. They said, well, uh, what if we had a parliament, right. too? And we st so I feel like most other countries have evolved with their forms of government, but we're stuck with nope. They wrote a piece of paper 250 years ago. That's right. what it is. We can't do anything. And if anything, we're going backwards on that with our new SCOTUS right. positions. I mean, at least there was a time when they saw the Constitution as a living and breathing document. Now I feel like a lot of these new appointees don't see it that way. So that could be very regressive in a, in a sense. Something else yeah. to keep our eye on. Um, I want to talk about evictions for a moment because I think this is the other scary thing that's coming down the pike. At the end of March, we are looking at the end of the eviction moratorium that we've had. So this is an estimated 10, 10 million renters uh, could be evicted. Uh, their rent payments beginning at the of 2021 being owed was $57 billion, including utilities. That's an insane amount of money. So uh, John Farina actually covered a protest in New, York, in New York City yesterday where they were fighting these evictions. And I wanted to play a little bit of, of that video in case you guys missed it. Um, and he interviewed some of the folks that were there protesting. So let's play that clip. You've been here to other uh, previous uh, rallies yes, and yes. demonstrations. Yes, the Crown Heights Tennis Union. Uh, have you ever seen this many uh, police? Never, not even a fraction of this. Why do you think that they have this many cops out there today? Maybe it's, maybe it's the uh, landlords. Organizing um, some fight back of our nature. I'm not sure, right? Not sure, right yet. But we're strong. We're strong today. We, you know, people are at work and so on. But we we have a housing movement, citywide, nationwide. It's, it's only getting bigger. People could just start being evicted today. People who had had earlier notices and conflicts over their rent. People who may not have filled out the form to protect them because of the pandemic conditions. And and so many landlords are just harassing folks all the time anyway to try to get them out. And repairs are not made. Apartments are overpriced. There's racist landlords and so on. Yeah. We're here today because it's March 1st and we know that the eviction protections for some of our New Yorkers are coming to an end. And evictions, and evictions are going to start. And we know right now how dangerous evictions are in the middle of a pandemic. We also want to make sure that Senator Kavanaugh knows that his most recent bill is absolutely inadequate and is another means-tested version of absolute garbage. We all know that his bill last summer Less than 40 million people qualified, $30 million of it, of the $100 million was used. And we also know that people were not covered. People who have no pay stuff, people who are undocumented, some of our most vulnerable neighbors were not protected. I say it's about time they start applying for some relief instead of asking us to constantly apply for relief.
charging tenants all citywide. No. Hell no. That's right. And now, and now, DHCR was asked to uh, administer the rent relief program. That sounds excellent, doesn't it? So either you have to be compelled by the moral argument that people are going to be unhoused in mass, which is unacceptable, or if that doesn't compel you, the economic one should for the reasons that you were discussing earlier. What are your thoughts on this? And do you think that they're going to extend the moratorium or are they going to do something else like a UBI? What, what do you think is going to happen here? I think we're going to end up probably with an extension of it. It'll be one of those things, as it always is, kind of down to the wire, you know, a day or two left to finally get this thing passed, or maybe even a couple days after some people already get screwed, because um, we've seen that happen in the past. But this, this is a Band-Aid. You know, it's just putting a little Band-Aid on it. We need the moratorium 100%, but that's not going to solve the ultimate problems wow. that these people are facing. I mean, that's right. How, how in God's name are these individuals going to have the money to pay 12 months of back rent? Right. You know, wh wh where is this going to come from for these individuals? That, that, that's the part that uh, has not been addressed in any way by Congress. I mean, mm -hmm. wh wh they're, they're not even talking about it. I want to see them talking about how we get these people, not just an eviction moratorium, but rent relief. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to have right now, rent relief. And, you know, of course, I, I, I know landlords are not, you know, obviously the most loved individuals, but these people, they, they do have to also, you know, have money. Otherwise, they're going to be in the same situation. So they've right. got to have their income. Um, so, so we have to do something to normalize this situation. And then, of course, once we get that done, once we get the Band-Aids, then we get the remedy, then we actually have to look at the entire structure of it and say, how can we prevent something like this again? I mean, this whole pandemic has exposed just how fragile everything in this country is. I mean, I know we put on this great facade, but behind that, everything is just crumbling to hell. And nobody ever wanted to look behind the facade, but COVID forced us to do that, to show us how weak our economy really is that, hey, look what happens when you shut down the service industry. The entire economy starts crumbling. Look what happens when suddenly people miss two paychecks. Oh, right. I, you know, and this is like back in April. Oh, people are suddenly facing an eviction crisis after a month. That's how poor our economy truly is. And yet we go about as a country boasting being the, we're the, we're the richest, we're the biggest, we're the baddest. No, we are basically a third world country in a fancy hat. And exactly, it's like lipstick on a pig. I don't disagree with anything yeah. you said there. They're basically going to kick the can just further down the street, right? But unless yeah. there is absolute rent relief or that money is just wiped away clean, I don't see how this gets any better. People will, I mean, how many times are you going to install this moratorium? And then the, the bill comes due and it's, you know, 20K that you owe your landlord and you're supposed to pay that. That's not going to happen. So, uh Kicking the can down the street is not going to work for anything. What they should have been doing all along was an emergency UBI. Just put money in the cash of every individual. That way the landlord gets paid and they can pay their mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Still not entirely dealing with the structural problems. Uh, for example, I think there's a difference between a landlord that owns like a duplex or a fourplex and right. he's just an individual 
or some of these Wall Street investors and um, hedge funds that have been buying up property. That's a thing here in California, believe it or not, or the REITs, the very large property owners. Those folks are a little bit different, right? Those are just oh, capitalist yeah, yeah, machines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, definitely make that distinction. I don't care about the Wall Streeters or these, you know, investors and the developers. Like, to hell with those people. But you do have good, honest, just everyday people who say, hey, you know, I, I, I moved out of my house. Rather than sell it, I want to rent it. Um, right. So, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong. These, these are not the evil individuals. There's plenty of bad actors oh, in the entire real are. estate industry. I mean, so many of them. So, um, so many. Yeah, just, yeah, didn't just want to make sure I wasn't. No, I hear you. Like, no, I, but it's, I think it's something to think about. You know, here in Los Angeles, we have hedge funds that have bought up single family houses even. So and they rent them out. Right. And then we've we've been covering uh, local evictions here where they're illegal evicting people from these single family houses. And we have various uh, nonprofits here that are are basically rehousing the individual individuals back into the homes. So this has been an ongoing thing now for a few months. And at the same time, we have an increase in our homeless population. We now have um, parking lots where folks are sleeping in their cars. At least they have a safe spot to park at night and sleep in their car. But how is this even a thing? How is it that the United States of America is at this point? It's, it's horrific because you're right. We're supposed to be the wealthiest country. And indeed we are. But all of that money is getting extracted and sucked up by the platonomy. It's not, it's not trickling down. It's never going to trickle down. They're just extracting more and more wealth so that they can buy their 28th yacht. So I want to understand why, why we're not changing this. Where is the will to change this? We send elected officials to Congress to change this, and they're still not changing it either. So I think there's a palatable anger out there. It's, it's understandable. And I don't see it getting um, deflated anytime soon because... Nothing is structurally changing and we need real structural change in the country. You know, and we do. And, and all through, you know, 2018 and 2019, I, I, I told the same story kind of over and over again, both of those years. And it came to fruition at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's this. We, the United States, years and years ago, decided to rebuild our economy. And we were the three little pigs rather than make our economy out of bricks, something strong, something able to withstand a couple of you know blows from the wolf, we built our economy out of straw. And that straw is concentrating all the wealth at the top. You know, the bricks are the American workers. And the last time we had a strong economy was when we had a what? A 32 to one CEO to worker pay. That's right. Like that was the ratio. You know, we had strong unions. People had jobs with benefits. We didn't have hospital corporations sending you 18 different bills for different services when you had to go to the emergency room. None of that existed. The middle class was strong and it was driving a strong economy. And I, I would also mention the highest marginal tax rate was over 90% under Eisenhower. So that was right. all of that middle class growth was being driven by marginal tax rates that were absolutely more fair. And if anybody doesn't think having a higher tax rate on the wealthy isn't more fair, I would like to have a discussion with them <laughs> because it is. Exactly. Uh, and, and, also, and, and so, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to finish and just say, so we concentrate all the wealth at the top. We take it away yeah. from those in the middle, those at the bottom. They're left with nothing. That's and that's why we have this economy that every time something crazy happens, like a pandemic, which again, okay, that's a life-changing event, sure. But right. we have gone in and out. 
of so many different recessions since 1980. You know, it's crazy. Sometimes we have to look back and say, you know what, though? We keep hitting these low points, these ridiculously low points. Maybe, maybe we ought to do something. You know, maybe, you know, when you, when you hear an appliance keep making a noise and just shutting off, you don't just say, well, it'll be fine for a couple months, so I guess it's okay. No, you have to fix it because right. if you don't, you're going to end up with real problems and we're going to be stuck in this endless cycle yeah. of recession and recovery. And it's gonna be recoveries, much like during the Obama years, that don't go to the right. middle class. It's recoveries that are concentrated at the top. Yeah, so very on anemic. Paper, yeah, on paper, you see, oh, the stock market looks great. Cool, we've got millions of people living on the streets and we have more empty homes than we have homeless people. So you tell That's me right. why the stock market matters for a, even a second. So let's talk about, I wanna switch gears and talk about Andrew Cuomo for a minute because boy, this guy was the darling of the Democratic Party last year for his handling of the COVID crisis. The neoliberals and the party leadership were just falling all over Andrew. There was talk of him perhaps uh, becoming a presidential candidate at some point. He was just the darling, right? Now, a year later, he is embroiled in all kinds of drama and scandal. We have corruption charges. We have uh, sexual harassment charges. We have a third uh, gal that's come up this morning. The first two were his ex-aides. Uh, one of them mentioned a story where she was asked by him to play strip poker on a private jet. Do you really need to have tell a guy to not do that with his employees? Like, seriously? How, how is this even a thing? Um, but now there's also charges of ruthless intimidation, which is hardly shocking if you play if you've ever paid close attention to New York politics, right? So I wanted to bring everybody's attention to a report that was in the Times Union um, that's not getting a lot of attention, but I think it it's probably not an isolated incident. So in this report by Brandon Lyons and Edward McKinley. Um, this is going back to 2012 when Cuomo was trying to approve hydro hydrofracking in the state, which is very bad for the environment. And the EPA had publicly filed unfavorable comments. So the then regional administrator administrator for the EPA, her name is Judith Enk, received a threatening phone call for Cuomo's director of state operations, a guy named Howard Glasser. And he basically said, I'm going to destroy you if you don't withdraw the documents. And he said a few other things. I doubt, knowing Andrew Cuomo, I doubt that this is an isolated incident. I think this has probably happened in more areas as well. What are your thoughts on where Andrew is at now and where the Democratic Party is at with supporting him? <laughs> I, I've seen where do we begin? Many, <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've seen far too many people on Twitter actually defending this guy. Right. Uh, we have one of those viral tweets where this, you know, young uh, person, whatever, was talking about, ah, you got to understand. You Now, shut up. Like, there's no defending Cuomo. Yeah. If you're defending Cuomo, then you are abandoning any principle that you may have had. These people are absolutely, you know, they're not opportunists coming forward now. They're coming forward now because now is the time to come forward. You know, I hate when people say, I don't know, the timing of some of these things is suspicious. Right. Really, you have to look uh, for anybody who's been in that kind of position. It's not something that you're just readily sitting there like, oh, I can't wait to do this. Right. It's a painstaking decision yeah. that these people make. Do I come forward with this? This this is obviously not good for me. It's not something 
I want to relive or rehash, but I have to for the greater good. You know, think all the women coming out against Bill Cosby, the women against Harvey Weinstein. That's right. They all came out relatively close together because once the first domino falls, then it's easier for people to say, okay, it wasn't just me. It's not my fault. So I need to come forward with this because that's another big part of it too, is that thing. Well, what if, what if, what if it was my fault? You know, victims tend to, you know, have a little bit of that sometimes. And as for all these other things with the, the COVID and the bullying, Cuomo with the Democratic Party is the kid who was told to go clean his room. And if you clean your room, you're going to get all these great things. So he goes in there, he shoves everything in the closet <laughs> and he closes the door and he says, Mom, come look. It's all clean. It's all like it's all shoved clean. back I- in there. <laughs> yeah. And then the closet doors burst open and everybody sees, oh, my God, yeah. this guy this guy is just as bad as, you know, the other people that we rant about. Look, I'm, I'm in Florida with Ron DeSantis. I have gone nonstop against him. And I frequently now have to say, look, Cuomo, pretty much the same thing. I've said Cuomo is, is basically the left's Donald Trump at this point with the, the bullying, the grandiose right. attitude. I don't know about that nipple ring, though. But <laughs> everything else, this is what we fought against for four years. Are you really going to let this guy just get away with all of this stuff? Are you going to let him continue to be the face of your party? Because if so, have fun with that. 2022 is going to be really unpleasant for you. I cannot uh, agree more. I also think back to the IDC. I, who remembers the IDC, the power sharing agreement that the state uh, in New York State, the senators from the Democrats and the Republicans had together? How much progressive legislation died because of that a lot so you know here you had it you had progressive congress folks state senators that were able to say you know i support medicare for all i support the green new deal i support um not having hydro fracking in the state these are the things that i support but then none of that would ever get passed through because of the power sharing agreement that they had with republicans you know and this is the kind of stuff that goes on with the party machinations that i think really infuriate Americans infuriate the voters because they see it for what it is. All they, when they look at that, they see a Democratic Party that is spineless, that is not willing to stand up to the Republicans. In fact, they're enabling them in many ways, right? But they're able to get away with it because they say, but look, and they point out their website, but look at all the wonderful things I say I support. Well, you know, this is why we're at where we are with force the 15, force the vote and all these other things. People are fed up. They're tired of hearing All of these folks say we support these progressive things, but then they don't deliver the goods and they don't even fight for delivering the goods. They can't even even like raise a finger to fight for something that's necessary. So here we are. And I think Andrew Cuomo, I think the closet, uh, the (laughs) the closet metaphor is perfect. I think he's been shoving stuff in that closet for years and years and years. And it's just bursting out the sides. So I think there's more drama and more scandal coming out this week, probably. I doubt it's only these three gals. I'm sure that there's other women that have experienced harassment at his hands. Generally, men like that tend to like be serial harassers. And back in the 90s, in the early 2000s, I hate to say it, but there are very few women that didn't experience something of these things. When I hear these stories, I can relate because I'm like, yeah, that sounds believable. And you are right when you talk about this being a difficult decision for anyone. It isn't comfortable. It's very uncomfortable. 
it isn't to your benefit because there are, whether we like it or not, women still slut shame. They still victim blame. They still do these things. Uh, so you're putting yourself in that spotlight and there's, and there's very little benefit. So you do have to make a decision that is about the common good and, and that you're going to be strong. I mean, look what happened to Tara Reid when she tried to tell her story. That's another prime yeah. example. My, um, my worst part of this, my worst favorite thing of this is, is this sort of litmus test that some of the liberals do about whether or not it was it a Democrat that did it or a Republic. They seem to go full bore if it was a Republican that is guilty of sexual harassment. But if it was a Democrat male, Democratic male, then they, they sort of go, hmm, well, maybe, yeah. you know, there's a whole, you know what I'm saying? There's a double standard that's there that's just infuriating. We should not accept this behavior from anyone Period. End of story. Nothing further to say. And, and you know, it's really interesting, too, because Cuomo's failures as a leader in New York have, you know, as you're saying here, they've helped expose a lot of liberal hypocrisy out there. Yeah. You know, yeah, when it's when it's Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and, you know, Donald Trump, it's always you got to believe women, you got to believe women. Right. But then when it's, you know, Joe Biden and Andrew Cuomo, people say, whoa, whoa, wait a let's, minute. Let's. Yeah, let's yeah. Uh, let's think about this for a minute. Are we sure these people aren't just trying to be famous? Uh, no, I don't. Can you name a single person who's become famous because they came out and said, hey, so and so harassed me like that? That's not a claim to fame. Right. That doesn't make you rich and famous. And it's idiotic right. for anyone, regardless of where you are on that left spectrum to try to justify this or downplay it just because it's your side. But once again, we go to this and it, it's all back to the tribalism. It's and all back to the that... tribal. And isn't that the problem? And it, it just, it's infuriating because, so, you know, there might be some cases where it isn't true, but they're, they're very, very, very rare. And my point is this, is you don't treat the victims of sexual harassment or sexual assault that way. Like, are you, when's the last time somebody stole a candy bar from a store and there was something to the effect of like, well, he's probably guilty because he bounced a check 20 years ago. Why is it that women who are victims of sexual harassment get treated that way? It's ridiculous. You don't do that with any other crime. And yes, that's a crime. Sexually harassing, sexually assaulting a woman is a crime and we should not tolerate it in our society. Anyway. I, I agree 100%. I mean, there's just- Thank you for it, attending it's... my tea talk. <laughs> But it is it, it, it is disgusting. And, you know, we're, we're watching this play out. And hopefully Cuomo, I, I don't think it's in him personally. I mean, I don't live in New York, but I don't think it's in him to step down graciously. So this yeah, is going to be a fight. And I think it's going to be a fight that a lot of uh, the more center Democrats aren't going to want to have. But they're going to have to wake up and realize this is poison. This is poison to you. It's poison to your agenda. And every day that this man stays in office, you're giving fodder to those on the right to say, look at how crazy things are up there in New York. Aren't you glad we don't have that down here in maskless Texas? So, yeah, it's it, it's going to be bad. And it's taking the focus away from the fights we should be having, which is, again, the fight for 15, the pandemic right. relief which by God, who knows if that's coming. And of course the rent relief that we desperately need. Cuomo is a big distraction yeah. from all of those things for the party and they need to get rid of it.